Hey, everybody, thanks so much for listening to this bonus episode that we have right now. Coming up, now that the winter months are upon us, we are looking at a film that is, in my opinion, an underrated John Carpenter classic. I'm joined by fellow IU student Carter Burkhardt, and today we are talking about the cold, claustrophobic horror film about an extraterrestrial life form that takes on the form of the previous victim it kills and inhabits. After discovering the creature's remains and chaos ensuing, a group of American scientists at a research base in Antarctica must work together to find out who among them is human and who is the monster. I'm, of course, talking about the 1982 gore-filled horror classic, The Thing. That's coming up next on The Cinemaniacs. everybody, and welcome to The Cinemaniacs, the show for the Maniacs for Cinema. I'm your host, Jack Linder, and with me today is fellow IU student Carter Burkhart. Carter, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on, Jack. I'm excited to talk about this classic horror film. I'm very excited about this one, too. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, so basically, before we begin, I kind of want to start really what's normally the end of the show. So you recommended this movie uh, to talk about on the show. You said it's one of your favorite movies of all time. What about this movie keeps you coming back to it? Why do you love this movie so much? I'd say why I love The Thing so much is that it's, in my opinion, one of the films that perfectly uses every minute it has in the craft. Like, if it's one of those films where I watch it, and I can't find any negative quality about it. You can have, like, a little nitpick on how a certain effect looks, or, like, say, like, like the stop motion looks kind of wonky at the end with the Blair thing. But, in my opinion, it masters everything it has in the art of filmmaking. That is storytelling, using the camera to visually tell like different emotions, the acting, it sets up characters perfectly, and also it has some of the best visual effects I've ever seen in a movie. It just uses the medium of storytelling perfectly, and there's not one minute wasted, and it's very efficient, and it trusts in the audience so much. I 100% agree with you, and I believe that I think that John Carpenter is an absolute genius at doing that. He knows how to tell a story. He knows how to build suspense. I mean, he's the guy that created the Halloween franchise. I mean, mm-hmm. he is such a master at telling this kind of a story, and I totally agree with you, this is a really, really well-structured movie, you know? He doesn't waste any time with anything in this movie, and he just knows how to hit the point so well with the suspense and how to build it up so well, you know? He's such a master at creating all of these different emotions throughout, you know? And then, like you said, the visual effects are, again, like you said, some of the best I've ever seen, you know? It's not like it's gore that we've ever seen you know Mm -hmm. it's more gore it's a it's a unique kind you know it's something that audiences hadn't quite seen before you know but it still disgusts you you know it's so crazy what do you think about all that uh i think that the idea of the thing is perfect in sort of the visual effects like you said where it imitated millions of life forms so when it is under attack and has to defend itself it uses it uses that to its ability where you just like mix multiple different creatures into one and you just have like these disgusting like messed up <laughs> effects like whoever designed those or yeah whoever designed those and like put them to the screen and i mean i don't know how you thought of that but no yeah yeah rob like thank god for robotine his special effects are actually incredible yeah. and yeah he worked so hard that um he gave him he had to be hospitalized 
Yeah. I, I, go ahead. Yeah. yeah finish he, that off. He got. Uh, he worked so hard making the effects that he, like, was so exhausted. He had he, like a bleeding ulcer. Yes, and a stuff bleeding like that. ulcer. Yes. He had, and he had to be hospitalized. And my God, it paid off. Perfectly. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Like I, I'm so glad that you got to that because we were gonna get to that later on in the show. But I'm glad you brought it up now because it's such, it, it's such a testament to how hard this crew worked on this movie because you know. I think he he worked like seven days a week for an entire year, you know, I mean, he's putting his heart and his soul into it, you know, I think he was only like 22 at the time when the movie mm -hmm. came out. I mean, he worked his ass off for this entire project and it totally pays off, you know, mm -hmm. he gave more than 110% for this whole thing. And I mean, he worked so hard that like you said, he had to be hospitalized for yeah. it. And it's, I mean... If this movie, I mean, it did bomb, you know, the critics didn't like it at first, you know, but the one thing that they kept mm -hmm. coming back to were the visual effects. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, at least for him, it was a plus, you know, because it's it ultimately ended up paying off for him, at least. But later on, as it gained more of a cult following, you know, people started to appreciate the overall story more, you know. So, I mean, for him, at least, you know, in the beginning, it's it did really pay off, though. So Right. Yeah. And I think the sort of proof that I sort of stand by the fact that say for monster monsters and all that in movies like you can use cgi for other things that will be impossible practically but yeah say for if it's possible and practical i always stand by that and one of the examples of why i believe that is look no further than 2011 remake that just... it screwed over the um practical effects studio amalgamated dynamics and if you can find footage online of them using actual practical effects for the creatures in that movie but the studio executives for some reason, made the brainless decision to cover all the practical effects with CGI, yeah. and when you watch it, like you don't feel the true visceral disgustingness of the monster when it's uncovered. It's like just it's obviously like PlayStation Two graphics put onto the screen, <laughs> and that's like this movie's an example of why I feel practical effects are just much better than CGI when it's possible because it's an interactable object with the actors. Yeah. It's something real that they can interact with, you know, and it's something real that the audience could see. It's something it feels real because it is real, you know. Yeah. And I'm so glad that you brought that up. I forgot to type it down in my notes, but I'm so glad that you brought up the remake because I wanted to ask you, yeah, like what why do you think that that remake went so wrong where this one went so well, you know, but I think you hit the nail right on the head. It's mm -hmm. just the visual effects, everything just looks so fake and you know that it's fake there. Mm -hmm. And I really wish that they could have used those practical effects because I've heard about that movie and how it wanted to use practical effects. But yeah, like you said, the studio studio executives, like for some unknown reason, they just trashed that idea. And I think it could have been honestly like this. That film could have been just as good as the original. Honestly, in terms of the special effects, I think it it, it, it at least would have been in the conversation. What do you think? It could have. I think it's not just the practical effects where I feel like the remake, not remake, sorry, it's prequel. But also partially a remake. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. kind of the same story. Really, mm -hmm. it's basically the same story. I think that also kind of failed on storytelling aspects and kind of just not really understanding how to how to make suspense the same way Carpenter did, where everything feels much more telegraphed as a oh he is gonna be the thing, and also just the characters are nothing compared to the um, American Outpost from 82. Oh, absolutely. And going back to Carpenter and just how well he crafts the story, it's. He knows when to hold back and he knows when to give the audience that information. You know, mm -hmm. I'm a little sneak ahead of uh, for the show. My personal favorite scene is uh, the blood test scene. Oh, it's because, yeah. you know, we learned so much. Like, even though, you know, I love the scenes where he doesn't tell us anything. I love the ambiguous scenes and things like that. That scene when he tells us all this stuff, you know, it's so well crafted and he still builds that suspense because like 
it's probably the most tense scene in the whole movie, you know, because mm-hmm. they're all just sitting there and he's slowly just heating up the, the copper wire and he's going to put it into the blood, you know. And so mm-hmm. it's it's something else, you know. So, like, even though he tells us quite a bit, you know, in that scene, it's still just as good as all the other scenes where it's left ambiguous, you know. That That's at least my opinion. So going on a little bit more about the storytelling and things like that, I mean, one of the reasons why I love this movie so much, again, is why, like you've been saying this whole time, how well it's crafted, you know, how great the script is, you know, how well the story is told. And to me, it heavily reminds me of the original series of The Twilight Zone. And I show. I am an absolute diehard fan of that show, the original. I love it so much. You know, honestly, it might be one of my favorite shows of all time. It's such a well-written show. Rod Serling was an absolute genius in what he did. You know, I'm guessing based off your reaction, have you seen the show? Yes, I um, I remember way back, I think I was like 12 years old, I went to... um. Disney World for my brother's lacrosse tournament, and I went on the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, yeah. and I was like, asking my father, I was like, what is the Twilight Zone? And he was like, oh, this is random sci-fi show, and I found like a bunch of episodes on YouTube, and I watched it on my iPod late at night, and I yeah. was like, <laughs> I think I was terrified of it, like such things as like, oh my God, the aliens, it's a cookbook, yeah, to serve man, and the um, episode The Midnight Sun mm-hmm. kind of terrified me also. Yep. And, yeah, it's a show that is what I consider, like, some of the best sci-fi storytelling ever. Yeah. And Rod Serling is such a good—he's such a good author in science fiction, and also he's such a good showrunner where he maintained his um, full creativity over the entire show. Absolutely. And he always maintained this perfect circle of writers who he would write ideas with, and he—I believe he wrote— um, a strong portion of a it. strong portion. I'd say like three quarters of the show, three fourths of the show, he wrote himself. Yeah, and yeah, there you can find so many different perfect episodes in there. Absolutely. And yeah, it's always debated as like what the best episode is, even though it is made in, uh, it was it was made in a time that was so long ago. Right. It's still just as entertaining to me today. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so well done. You know, and the social commentary that it gives on it. You know. I personally enjoy some of the uh, Jordan Peele versions of The Twilight Zone. You know, I think it's really, I think he does a really good job of it as well, you know. But there's just something about that original that makes it so special, you know. Right. And it's just exactly like the thing, you mm-hmm. know. It's, you, you can't quite remake this kind of a thing, you know. Like when the author's done such a great job of it, you know, it's, it's so hard to get it right the second time, you right. know. And so going on a little bit more about the Twilight Zone and just how much it compares, you know, to me, this specific uh, this specific episode reminds me so much of the thing. You know, it's the Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. Uh, have you seen that episode? Yes, I have seen it. It's a, basically the exact same premise. And, you know, like the reason why I love the thing so much is that I feel like it could be a Twilight Zone episode in and of itself. You know, it's, it feels like something that Rod certainly could write. It feels mm-hmm. like a story that he could craft, you know, and it's just so well done and it's. It's probably one of my favorite episodes of The Twilight Zone, The Monsters Are Doing Maple Street, because it's just, it's both a horror element, but it's also the mystery element of it, too. So it keeps you on your toes. It keeps the suspense going, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a, I mean, both pieces are so well done with how well they maintain that horror, but the suspense as well, and keeping the mystery alive the entire time, you know? Even in terms of the thing, up until the very end, and even past the ending of the movie, it's still a mystery. You yeah. never know. You it, know? It, it lets the audience decide for itself. Exactly. I mean, I don't think John Carpenter has ever given an interpretation of the ending of the movie. Like, people have asked him dozens and no, dozens yeah. of times, but I don't think he's ever, at least from what I could find, I don't think he's ever given an, a, 
like specific answer of like what he thinks at least happens in the end you know he just gives us the yard and he's like it's up to you guys to decide oh yeah you know? I, I don't want to get too ahead but yeah that's kind of the beauty in the ending is that i've read many different interpretations mm-hmm. of what the ending can be and like what may happen after and yeah it originally was scripted that it was much more upbeat to where mccready is saved yeah and it ends in him successfully passing the blood test but mm-hmm. um test audiences didn't like that and it it yeah in my opinion if that was added it would have greatly um detracted the ending yeah it would have um it would have been it's too optimistic for such a nihilistic movie mm-hmm. and i think carpenter himself said on why that any was chosen he was like would you like to seen the thing blow up with a big symphony exactly i mean going off of that you know i mean even though the score itself is so iconic and mm-hmm. it's so good, you know, there's not a lot of music in a lot of the action scenes, you know, like the, like we said, the defibrillator scene, the uh, the blood test scene, there's no backing track or anything like that, which really surprises me. Carpenter just lets the action happen and he really oh, yeah. just wants to f- primarily focus on all those effects that uh, his crew worked so hard at, at, uh, at putting together, you know. So that was just something that kind of surprised me the last time I watched it, you know. W- w- what did you think about that? It's, it's kind of an idea I have where in action movies also, like, say, like, the classic Heat shootout from 95, yeah. it doesn't add any soundtrack as that until, like, the final scene when it climaxes. Exactly. Because it would have it distracted the audience. And, like, action scenes like that and action scenes from The Raid 2, they let it play out. And sort of, like, the soundtrack that that is, like, the various noises that you hear. Like, yeah. say, in The Thing, you have, like, this, like, the violent transformation with all these weird sound effects, the screams of The Thing, and, like the flamethrower is turning on and <laughs> it just uses these like um it just uses the sounds to blend together and just add to the tension and i feel that if a soundtrack was blaring throughout it would have it would have um gave more assurance to the audience if that definitely. makes sense definitely yeah mm-hmm. absolutely i mean just going back to how masterful a composer that john carpenter is you know and like we've been saying this whole time he knows when to give us certain elements of his movies and when to hold back you know halloween the entire time you just hear that you hear that the whole time you know that's the music itself is what makes it scary the music itself is what helps drive the suspense this movie he knows when to hold back you know he knows when to give us the music and when to help create that tension in that atmosphere you know the very beginning just the boom boom you know on the synthesizer and it's exactly just to set the mood and then he only plays it during specific times again really i think it's just help to create a mood i feel like that's the only time that he needs to do it and once that mood is set then he lets the action go Mm -hmm. you know that's kind of how i've seen it you know so it's it's so well done and it's so well crafted i mean i could say it ten thousand times and i will probably continue to say it throughout this whole show you know but i mean going back to like the inspirations and things like that i'm curious to see what you think it's just kind of a funny side note that i thought about uh, earlier today i feel like this movie and then another one of your favorite movies you said alien yes i feel like those two films were like the primary inspirations for the game among us it was like the yes, biggest yes. game in the world it's still very popular now fun, fun side story Ex- i was watching it uh, a month ago in my room and my roommate comes by near the middle of it and he was like watching i think it was the palmer blood te- it was the palmer thing when it splits his head open and like yeah. everyone's reacting like talking about like who's and like scenes like that, it's like saying who's who. And he literally said he haven't he hasn't seen the movie before either. And he said, "Is this Among Us?" And he's like, "This is Among Us." And this I was is like, a movie adaptation. And I was like, "Yeah, you're right." And there's also a meme I saw when Among Us was huge. It was like this: is the original Among Us. And it was just a picture of the um, 
outpost of all the people in the movie. And I was like, <laughs> well, you're right. <laughs> I guess I'm not the only one that's thought that before. No, yeah. But yeah, it's so funny. Just like the setting and then the actual concept of it itself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just so funny to think about. You know, I just thought that was pretty funny. Uh, do you have anything else that you want to get to bef- uh, before we get to the categories? Uh, no, I think I'm ready. All righty. Well, first one up is just really simple budget and box office numbers and things like that. This mm-hmm. budget was about $15 million. It was a little bit under before, but because of the special effects and because they needed more uh, they needed more things to help drive uh, all the special effects and things like that, it ended up going up to $15 million, And the box office was only about $20 million. We've talked a little bit about it. It, I mean, really, you look at it, it was a flop. It was a box office flop. And Sadly, only, it was. It, I mean, there are many different explanations and reasons that people throw out there for why. You know, you brought up John Carpenter's reasoning, like why he thought about it, you know. Uh, go ahead. I, I mean, it's honestly, it's baffling to me. Like, an interesting thing I like to think about is what if, like, a movie that's critically acclaimed now was successful when it came out? An example is... This came out the same weekend as Blade Runner. Yeah, same another day. Like, another nihilistic sci-fi movie that bombed when compared to like the optimistic ET. And one of the reasons I heard was that the United States would in, was in a pretty bad recession. Yep, they were. And audience would audiences wouldn't want to see a nihilistic movie that's cold, violent, and you know you can't trust each other. And the, <laughs> I just find it so funny that. Um, one of the producers said, oh, this will compete against E.T. and steal, steal all the audience, adult audiences from it while all the kids go see E.T. Where you just, it's just this huge juxtaposition of it is. the friendly alien that um, brings life to the kids and heals them. Meanwhile, this the thing violently tears through and Rips steals, head open. steals the lives of humans. Exactly. I mean, it's such a stark contrast. I mean, yeah, I can kind of see what they were thinking of, you know, like, oh, it'll steal the adult audience mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But this is like, it's not just a stark contrast from E.T. Like, it's a complete 180 of E.T., you know? Exactly. Like you were saying, like, friendly, fun, PG, E.T., you know, E.T. phone home, you know, such a fun, feel-good adventure, and then you turn over to John Carpenter's movie. It's and a it's, nightmare. It's an literally an absolute nightmare. And especially, like, the biggest thing, I feel like, at least in my opinion, the ambiguous ending. Mm-hmm. Not a lot of people like them. I personally love ambiguous endings if it's done well, you know? Like, that's why I like a lot of the Twilight Zone episodes, you know? A lot of them are left ambiguous, you know? I mean, there's twists upon twists and things like that, you know? But, I mean, a lot of audiences don't like the ambiguous ending. They like to know what's going to happen. And that's why they filmed that extra scene uh, mm-hmm. with Kurt Russell, you know, about... McCready getting safe and getting home safely, you know, and doing a blood test to prove that he's not a thing and he passes it, you know. So, I mean, I, I totally 100% agree with John Carpenter's uh, take on it and to put the ambiguous ending with it. But, you know, do you think that if he had that happier ending, more people could have been drawn to it? That's a good question. I'm not sure, honestly, because audiences are very hard to predict. They are. You can see, like, obvious trends, like, oh, a Marvel movie's going to do good because it is a really su- successful IP. But exactly overall, it's really hard to tell, like, what audiences will love and what they don't because another example is The Shining. It was so polarizing, and... Everyone hated it. it critic, critics either hated it or they loved it. And it, in fact, even got, like, Razzie nominations. Definitely, yeah. And... Yeah, you look at it now, it's considered like another horror masterpiece. It's I find it really hard to predict what audience, how audiences would feel. Personally, I think they wouldn't like the happier ending because it seemed it seemed too optimistic. Yeah, 
and it would and critics would also feel i mean critics already hated it which is a crime in itself when it came out yeah i'll get into that in a sec but um (laughs) i feel like they would also critique the ending and how it was too happy Mm -hmm. when when compared to the rest of film the rest of film is so much there's so much um bleakness Mm -hmm. and lack of hope against this unstoppable threat totally agree with you yeah i 100 percent agree because like that for that exact same reasoning i feel like it would go against the tone like if i saw it in mccready gets away you know he passes the blood test like yeah that's great but like if i knew that there could have been a better ending with an ambiguous one i if in another world you know the happy ending is chosen and we know that there's an ambiguous ending i probably would have preferred the ambiguous one because Mm -hmm. it goes well with the the tone of the whole movie with the themes of the movie like you were saying you know there's all this hopelessness going on in this entire base and it literally goes against one of mccready's own one of mccready's own lines you know he goes we're not getting out of here but neither is that thing oh, yeah. you know mm-hmm. like he's not he's like we're not making it out of here alive oh no know? it would totally go against the scene where he gives the final speech exactly saying like we got to sacrifice ourselves to stop this thing from freezing the ice and then he's the only one that makes it exactly i mean and we'll get into it some of the theories and things like that about this movie about the ambiguity and stuff like that but uh moving on a little bit like we've been saying critics rating now, at least in 2021, critics rating are 8.1 out of 10 and 82% on IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes. And again, take these with a grain of salt. You know, these aren't the yeah. most trusted sites or anything mm-hmm. on in the world. So I really like these scores. I think they really match this movie really well. You know, if anything, we could probably give it a little bit more, honestly, I'd say. I think 82 is too low for it. You think it's too low? You think it's too low? Please explain. I mean, obviously, Rotten Tomatoes is a weird website. Like, it's either a rotten or a fresh, yeah. and that could be anything. It could be a three out of a three out of five, a five and a half out of five, or, yeah, like a... And yeah. it, there's no, like, middle ground. I think there's, yeah. I it's think, either considered good or bad, and... I think it's literally, like, right down the middle. Like, yeah. over 50% is fresh, 50 and below is not fresh. You know? And I think the scores... They don't evolve to like the current mindset of a film. I, they also take into account the reviews at the time, so that I feel that's why it's an eighty-two still, is because mm-hmm. they still have like all the reviews back then that called it, quote like instant junk or barf bag cinema, <laughs> and they haven't taken into account like the, the relook at it in like modern day that where it's considered like a masterpiece of horror cinema. Definitely, it's, it's so weird. You know, I mean, I've heard on a couple different podcasts. You know, like the the rewatchables, like I told you about. Uh, some some people believe like those guys on that podcast. They believe like when it comes to like things like the Academy Awards and stuff like that, they should be given out like five years after the movie's released to see like how well it impacts it's interesting cinema thought. and stuff like that. You know, they're, they're probably just joking around and stuff like that. But I mean, I'm like, it, it could potentially work, I guess. You know, but that aside, you know, like we've been talking about, critics didn't like it. You know, audiences really didn't like it. I mean, a lot of the different reasons, I mean, one of them was the fact that, like, people think that there were just too many sci-fi movies being released that year, you know? Like, it was, you know, so there was, like, Mad Max 2, like you said, Blade Runner was literally released the exact same day, Star Trek 2 came out that year, Tron, I mean, so many sci-fi movies, so people feel like just with the overwhelming amount of sci-fi and, like, uh, horror movies and stuff like that being released that year, that's probably why it didn't do so well, you know? I mean, another another reason, like we kind of talked about earlier, compared to E.T., was that it was an R rating. You know, mm-hmm. there's so many curse words and things like that. You know, so many, like you said, barf bag cinema kind of. It's always know. harder for an art film to get profit. Definitely. <laughs> it is. It really is. I mean, the only time that people are hoping for an R rating is when the movie has the potential to go to an X rating 
or oh, an yeah. NC-17. I mean, yeah. that's really like the only time that people are hoping for an R rating is like to help draw in more of an audience, you know, because mm-hmm. I don't know a lot of people that are going to go see an NC-17 movie. So I never have. I don't remember ever like going to theaters and seeing NC-17 movie. I don't think I've ever done that either. Being so. currently released. I think that's like a bygone thing. It is, honestly. I mean, it's. I don't even think it's known as an X rating anymore. It's always just known by no, yeah. NC-17. Uh, as far as awards and nominations go, we talked a little bit about it. This is the first time on this show that we've covered a Razzie-nominated movie. It was nominated for Worst Musical Score. That hurts. That hurts so much. Ennio Morricone's theme is so simple but so perfect. Just like the Jaws theme. Yeah. Just like the Jaws theme. I've heard a theory. I mean, this is kind of a side note, but I've heard a theory on it where, like, the simple two-note theme of the synth mixed in with the long string that I imitated earlier it's like it's the thing in itself. We're listening to the inside. You hear a heartbeat, mm-hmm. but you know it's not a perfect replication of a heartbeat because of that background, dramatic, um, just like synth line. Like yeah, like it's just it's just a perfect theme. It is, and it like we've been talking about. It sets the tone so well. You know, mm-hmm. like you watch, you don't even have to watch the opening scene. You don't even have to see any of it. If you hear that theme. You know that this is no E.T. movie. This no. is no lighthearted, you know, you just hear the bump, bump. You're like, oh, yeah. shit, something's about to go down, you know? Yeah. Like, it's obviously a much darker film. Then. And it's such a strange deviation from Morricone's other works because he obviously worked with Sir... Is it Sergio Leone? Yeah, Sergio, Sergio, Sergio Leone. Leone. My, my bad. No, you're good. But Sergio Leone's classic westerns, Once Upon yeah. a Time in the West... The Man with No Name trilogy. He obviously did the classic themes with Good, Bad, and the Ugly, which yeah. are like epic scores of like Western, like classic cowboy music that's iconic. But then mm-hmm. I don't know if it's because John Carpenter was directing and he's like obviously a huge synthwave guy, but he made him do just this very simple synth theme. Yeah. And it's so simple, but so perfect. The fact that it's nominated for a Razzie. <laughs> it sucks. I mean, you know. Yeah. It's so going off of that a little bit, like he made. A bunch of different versions of the same theme and i think carpenter asked him for the synthesized version because it was much closer to his own liking because john carpenter did not uh compose this score he did mm-hmm. not create this score even though he normally does it for a lot of his other movies but he wanted to still stick to his to his uh genre like how he creates his own music so when he's heard the synthesized version he asked for that version specifically and there's a funny story uh like many, many, many years later, out of all people in the world, Quentin Tarantino was looking for somebody to create the score for The Hateful Eight. Mm-hmm. And I can't remember. I can't remember if it was John Carpenter. It may have been him. But somebody recommended to him, like, hey, like, take the orchestral version of The Thing. Really? Because it wasn't released. You know, it wasn't ever put in the film. It wasn't released or anything. So it was just basically on standby. So they asked. So Tarantino asked to use it. And so basically that whole version is what he helped like base his whole theme in the hateful eight on you know it's a really cool story really yeah i didn't know that it was really cool uh so besides the razzie nominations it actually did get two positive nominations from the academy of science fiction fantasy and horror films for best horror film and best special effects so those are two very contrasting with the razzies you know I mean, yeah it's, like you said it's kind of like the shining you know like People either loved it or hated it shelly duvall was nominated for a razzie for worst actress yeah and correct me if i'm wrong but was Stanley Kubrick also nominated for Worst Director? I think he was. I think he was. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> it's 
it's tough, man, for that movie. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about that movie. I don't know if I'm going to do it next year, but I might. But it's I'm excited to talk about yeah, it. You could go in a rabbit hole on all the different theories that people have about that. Oh, my gosh. You could talk about the theories for, like, five hours and then talk about the movie for one. A movie about <laughs> a guy going mad has made people go mad about, like, it's about the moon landing. It's a parody. It's a, not, it's not a parody. of allegory for the Holocaust yeah. and so many different things. But... That's a really big rabbit hole. I don't it's want to try you into. Rabbit. I mean, literally, just watch the movie, the, watch the documentary two thirty seven, yep. and you, everybody in the audience, you'll understand what we're talking about. Like mm-hmm. the, that documentary is insane. Mm-hmm. It's so crazy. Uh, but moving on a little bit, I didn't have much time to put together a timeline or production history here, but basically. Uh, long story short, Carpenter's script and story was inspired by uh, John W. Campbell's 1931 novella, Who Goes There, has the exact same premise. There was another film, uh, there was a film adaptation called The Thing from Another World from the 1950s that was made, one of Carpenter's favorite movies of all time, and yep. that's why he wanted to remake this. He pays a lot of homage to the original movie in his movie. You know, he, Even though he tries to make the story his own, he pays a lot of homage to the original in, in uh, his version as well. Um, shooting took three months and was shot in artificially cooled sound stages in California because it's supposed to be at one point, I think McCready yeah. says like in six hours, it's going to be negative hundred. It's going to be like a hundred below. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously they had to artificially cool the sound stages there and, uh, exterior shots were filmed in British Columbia as well. Um, did you have anything else? Like any, uh, thing about the timeline or history or anything like that about the movie? Oh, well, Carpenter is a very big fan of the, um, thing from another world if you watch halloween the Mm -hmm. big film that the tv is showing at halloween night is the thing for another world yeah that's all the kids that laurie's babysitting want to watch Mm -hmm. laurie and tommy uh tommy doyle i believe is his name i believe yeah it's what they're watching though yeah and halloween is pretty cool so Mm -hmm. uh but yeah so yeah carpenter absolutely huge fan of uh the original version of the thing uh, so we'll move on and go ahead to uh, best scene. So what do you have for your list of some of your favorite scenes? So what I wrote down for my favorite scenes are just the opening shot, credits, and then just the dog chase, which I'll get into in a second. Yeah. When um, McCready and the doctor, I believe. Uh, Blair. Blair. No, no, not Blair. The um, man who gets his oh, hands shoot. chewed off. Oh, shoot. Uh, what's uh, Cooper, I think, is his name, right? Or I Copper. Believe, Copper. Yes. Copper and McCready visit the Norwegian camp and the subsequent autopsy of the um, split head thing mm-hmm. that they bring back. Benning's assimilation mm-hmm. and, like, reveal to the whole crew the blood test and the ending. Yeah. I mean, every scene is perfect in it, but those are the ones I love the most. Again, yeah, it's every single scene is so great at creating that mystery you know i mean mm-hmm. it's so it's so good you know i have a couple similar ones on there as well uh i have i also have the norwegian base scene i love just the them just walking around trying to figure out you know the mystery of just what the hell happened yes. here especially as a yes. first time viewer if you watch that you are just kind of like what the hell is going on mm-hmm. here you know they find the the one guy and he uh, he's lost so much blood in that yeah. um, negative weather that it's frozen like icicles on him. Yeah. Pretty striking image. That it's, and just like the. It was horrifying. Yes. That the torn apart walls, the bloody axe on the wall. Mm-hmm. And eventually you see like just this burning, like amalgamation of flesh in the snow. Yeah. And you, yeah. It's a terrifying scene, mm-hmm. you know? And I mean, and just a fun fact about that scene, you know, I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but that whole scene with the Norwegian base scene. That entire set is the exact same set as the American base. Really? But it was just after they blew it up. 
So after <laughs> after they filmed all of the explosions and stuff like that with the American base scene, that's when they went back and filmed the Norwegian scene. It's the exact same set. It's just after they blew it up. And I thought that was really funny to fi- to find out. Well, that's a good use of not building an entire other set. Exactly, saving money, saving ingenuity. Money. <laughs> uh, so I also have Benning's uh, Benning's uh, assimilation and his death scene. Mm-hmm. Just him like slowly raising his hand up and seeing the claw there yeah, that he's got. Didn't fully is, finish is so creepy. That to me. and the when Windows comes back in and the score like the sense slowly rises and you just like he you you cut to his what he's seen his point of view and you just see Benning's being like. Rang, wrangled like by up, these tentacles, yeah. yeah, and then go into his mouth, and and he, yeah, it's just that striking image, and then it's like the sudden cut. I mean, I don't, I don't want to get ahead of myself with how he carpenter frames sequence of events, but you hear like the keys clatter, yeah, and then he runs out, and then yeah, just the sequence of Benning's running away with like the alarm going off, and just the like the flare to add the striking lighting, and just a slow reveal of like. His amalgamated hand and just not like finished the scream that he yes. lets out, you know, in the face. Just mm-hmm. His eyes are bulging. Oh, it's yes. so yes. creepy. I love the uh, way that it portrays the creature screams where people theorize that it's an amalgamation of all the different creatures. It is assimilated into mm-hmm. one. Yeah. Yeah. It's I, I would easily 100 percent believe that, you know, because it's kind of is like if you think about it, it's like that's kind of what it would sound like, you mm-hmm. know, like it's it's assimilated so many different things, you know, so it's like. It, there would be no definitive sound that it would right. make, you know. So no it's, true identity. It's very well done, and I love what you brought up earlier, just about the the keys hitting the floor. Mm-hmm. He Carpenter makes it very clear, you know, like he wants that sound to be heard yeah. to the audience because it feels like Carpenter was ahead of his time with this movie. He knew about YouTube detective slews and like YouTube <laughs> yeah. video essays and stuff yep. like that before they were even a thing, you know. So like he knew people would be picking apart this movie even mm-hmm. though when it was released you could only see it once in the theater and then hope you could pick up more details as you went back to mm-hmm. the theater to keep watching it, you know. It's so well done and it's so creative with how they do that. Uh going on a little bit the defibrillator scene um with uh copper getting his arms bitten off, you know. It's Again, just building that suspension, that tension. But, I mean, it's one of the very few jump scares that you see in this movie. Because, again, as a first-time viewer, you're not expecting it. Norris is laying on the table, mm-hmm. and he's trying to get... And he's trying to... Uh, Copper's trying to revive him again. And then, all of a sudden, you just see his chest rip open. It terrified me the first time I saw scared it. scared me as a kid. Oh, my gosh. I was... It, it scared the crap out of me the first time I ever saw it. I, I jumped so high out mm-hmm. of my chair. It was so cool. Uh... Uh, moving on a little bit, uh, so the, yeah, the blood test scene, that is my absolute favorite scene in this movie, like I said earlier. The tension is so well built, you know, everything is so well crafted, and it's so funny, too, in the end. Oh, yeah, it's um, one of the funniest lines in a film for me is that <laughs> line where um, Gary is just, like, he's the last one to be tested because he obviously is the only one that had keys to the blood bank, mm-hmm. and when he's not, um, he's... He's positive. Well, he's not positive. He's negative for having thing infection. He, um, yeah, he says the line like, "I know you've all been through a lot, but I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch." And it's the perfect <laughs> delivery. Oh my god, and the perfect so scream. Funny. And yeah, it's just this sudden spark of humor in mm-hmm. such like a horrifying movie that it just works perfectly. And there are a couple like editing choices in there and cuts that work so well for the comedy as well. And not just in this scene, there's another scene when uh, McCready goes out to check on uh, Blair out inside the shed. Oh, yes, he's like, yes. he's like, if you've seen Fuchs anywhere, and then it cuts and, to the inside and there's just a noose yeah, hanging the in the Yeah, the of the noose in front of him. <laughs> and 
Um, who's the actor? The guy with the like the diabetes meme. Oh shit! That, yeah, that's the actor. Um, either he either he delivered it to sh- like kind of, either he just was like had no more like strength in him, or he was a thing trying to show emotion. But he's like, I don't want to be in here, McCready. Yeah, I like, want to go inside, and just it's a noose in front of him. It's just <laughs> very dark humor. It's so it's such a weird delivery, but like I yeah. totally agree. It's like either yeah he's out of strength, or like the thing is just trying to act like a human at first, you know? Because mm-hmm. like it's so weird how he delivers those lines. He's just like. I don't want to stay in here anymore. I want to come inside. And then he's like, you got to let me come inside, damn it. No. Yeah. Like, he's pleading so much, but, like, the way he delivers it is, like, so monotone, you know. Mm-hmm. So it could go well with that, though. Um, yeah, like, uh, but so going back to the editing then with the with the blood test scene, I love, like, the cuts that they choose uh, when after they test each person, you know. So, like, uh, Childs gets uh, tested, and he also gets negative. You know, he's yeah. not a thing. And then he's it like, cuts to cut him with the flame. No, cut it cuts, me loose. Well, it cuts to him with a flamethrower right after he tests it. Exactly. And also, and also with windows. He's yeah, the first with one windows he as well. It, and, like, you see, like, his, like, sigh of relief reaction. Then it cuts to him with a flamethrower he's also. He's just pointing it at people. And, yeah, it's just like a... It's perfect. You don't need to show them being untied. You just know that they are going to be untied. And... It's a great way to show comedy in a dark movie. Yeah, yeah. And also... Right before um, Palmer is tested, you he when he says um when he says we'll do Palmer next, you see like a reaction of like him like throwing his eyes to the side, like winding his eyes, being like, "Well, shit," kind of reaction. It's time, and it's now. like a blink and you'll miss it. But yeah, it perfectly shows that the thing rise, it's gonna be caught. Yeah, and like the thing is, is about that part is that the dialogue also helps that scene because they say we're gonna do Palmer next, and you really have to listen. He's like, "We'll do Palmer next." But then they go off and they start talking about other things. You know, Childs is saying, like, you're a murderer. Yeah, yeah. And, then and then Gary's like, this is pure nonsense. Doesn't prove yeah. a thing. And then he's like, don't worry, Gary. We'll do you last. And you forget who he's testing yes. at first. And then it just Wah! yeah, streaks out. And um, one of the little audio details I love in that is when, like, the, um, f- the blood flies out, the flamethrower falls, and Palmer's, like, violent shaking starts. Yeah. You hear, like, this, like, you hear, like, you don't know who's screaming, but you hear, like, these inaudible screams mm-hmm. in the background kind of like muffled by like everything else happening but it just really adds like the tension of it it does it does yeah just just to see him shaking he hasn't transformed or anything is just such a creepy image because like he's just sorry no 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 no, yeah he's just got such a blank face Mm -hmm. you know yeah one of the uh, issues i have with the remake is that the transformations aren't like a is it isn't violent no they like quickly just like take like their shirt falls off and it's like a giant mouth in scenes like the dog kennel and like the um uh, defibrillator um, transformation and like the blood test the transformation is violent it's like the body is fighting back against it and it has to like tear its way through like yeah the um, open chest shaking with all like the green tentacles like spewing out mm-hmm. the um the dog like recoil like shake like opening its mouth and like pain and like this the like it peels out like a flower and it's like oh my God. it's like violent it, it looks like a demogorgon from yeah. stranger things <laughs> yeah it's it doesn't seem pleasant for it and which adds to it yeah it's I totally agree because like when it comes to this yeah even though like there is some gore in there that maybe like I said at the top maybe like us audiences haven't ever seen before you know with just the strange alien life form you know there is also some that yeah you were very familiar with you know like the dog splitting its yeah. head open like a flower mm-hmm. you know it's oh it's so it's so brutal and it's so disgusting you know as a dog lover I hate the kennel transformation oh my god I it's hate so, it it's amazing but I was like oh there's one part of that sequence that I kind of had to question myself I was like is that technically animal abuse? It's when like the thing is like spewing like water or something at one oh, of the dogs. Oh, it spews acid. Know? 
uh, yeah, so like just seeing that shot of the dog getting hit with like I'm guessing it was water on set yeah, or something yeah. like that, I was like, is that technically animal abuse? I don't know, but like uh, it's probably just water. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's yeah, really violent. It is like the dogs are like like some of them are melting, others are being like grabbed by the tentacles, and there's like one assimilated to it, like jutting out. Yeah, and the like the thing dog is like writhing its like giant like tongue out of the hole in its head like violently with all these like spider legs also crawling out. Honestly, like, I should have put it in some of my nominees for best scene because the more I think about it, it's like, it's also, I mean, it's just as creepy as any other scene in mm-hmm. this movie, you know? It's also, what I love about this scene is that just the mystery is still behind it. Nobody knows what's going on. Mm-hmm. Like, everybody's running down, you know, McCready hits the fire alarm and he brings the shotgun down and he's like, what the hell is going on? And then Childs brings in the flamethrower. Yeah, one of my uh, favorite lines is um, Benning's running to Childs saying, Mac wants the flamethrower. Yeah. Mac wants the what? You know what he wants to move. It's like... <laughs> They never, like, it's just the alarm goes off, he wants a flamethrower, and it's, like, you know, like, what's going on here? That's one thing that I love about uh, McCready's character and just how well Kurt Russell plays it is that, like, he's only a pilot, oh, you yeah. know, for he's this entire the, crew. He's uh, not the leader of the outpost. But, but everybody treats him like he is the leader, mm-hmm. you know? And, I mean, one of those reasons is because, you know, he's the pilot. You want to, you know, be nice to the pilot because he's mm-hmm. your only way home, yeah. you know? But, like, yeah, it's so, he, Kurt Russell plays him with so much charisma, and, and he's just so good in it, and, you know, it's so good. So that was just a side rant about his character and all that, you know. I, I think it's awesome. Uh, m- moving on a little bit more for more best scenes, uh, yeah, just destroying the base in the final battle scene, and I'll tie it in with it, the ambiguous ending. Mm-hmm. Just that scene uh, with Childs and McCready just sitting across from each other, and we'll get into theories in the end still. Uh, but yeah, just seeing them like just kind of talking is like, why don't we just sit here for a while and just see what happens? Mm-hmm. You know, like those lines are just so haunting because like those guys are accepting their fate, even if one of them is a thing. You know, it's yeah. A, it's, even if neither of them are a thing, they are gonna freeze here. Yeah, and that's what just makes it so dark. It's such a bleak ending. You know, mm-hmm. like, and it sounds strange, but that's why I love it. You know, it's such a. You hardly ever get such an ambiguous ending, you know, in a lot of these movies. And I'm honestly a fan. Again, ambiguous, kind of bleaker endings. I'm kind of a fan if it's done well, you know. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's done very, very well, you know. So it's I, I love that very ending scene. What do you think about it? Yeah, I love it also how much it allows the audience to guess, like, what could have happened after. Like, I've read theories that, oh, McCready, his, the bottle of alcohol was rather a Molotov cocktail. Yeah. And he was, like, drinking gasoline. As a test. And, yes, and when Childs didn't, like, say, the theory in that is that when Childs drinks and he doesn't react to it, mm-hmm. McCready laughs because he knows that it's a thing, so he's going to light the bottle and burn him up. That's one of them. There's another where, like, oh, you don't see the breath of Childs. Yep, yep, and you that's McCready. Yeah, and it's just, like, these little, like, details. It's like, did Carpenter really intend for that? Yeah. Or did he not? And that's kind of the beauty in the ending is that you're free to decide what you think of it, and it gives you a lot to play with. There are a lot of elements of this movie that I know for a fact that like had to be Carpenter because he's such a genius of the genre. Mm-hmm. We know that he's a genius of the genre. I guarantee it's a it's a perfect mix of both happy accidents, like with actor choices and stuff like that, and also brilliant choices by Carpenter. You know, I mean, I guarantee it's a a good mix of both. You know, so like. Obviously, Stanley Kubrick is an absolute brilliant genius. He was a madman, oh, yeah. but he's an absolute genius, you know. I feel like the same could be said for some of his movies, you know, like all the crazy theories and things like that we were talking about earlier with The Shining, you know. I mean, the faking the moon landing, you know, and all these different things, you know. And Came all this... out before the moon landing in 2001. Yeah. And they predicted 
how the earth would look in outer space. <laughs> I'm not trying to say anything, but <laughs> he got a lot of it right. He did get a lot of it right. He did get a lot of it right. Uh, but yeah, the same. I mean, the same is said with this movie. I feel like it's a great mix of both brilliant decisions by the director and the and the cast and. Uh, the crew and everybody involved in the movie, but also just a couple happy accidents that can help create these different theories. You know, like with the breath, like mm-hmm. maybe it was a choice, maybe it wasn't. You know, who knows? Like that's why that's just the beauty of this ending. You know, that's why it's so good. Uh, moving on, best line. I think you and I probably have the same one, but uh, go ahead and list off a couple of your other favorite ones. So the ones I wrote down are McCready's when he's talking to the recorder. The final line is, "There's nothing more I can do. Just wait." And then he signs off. There's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, love that. I, I love that whole scene. I don't know what I don't know what the hell is in there, but it's weird and it's pissed off. <laughs> That's was, another great yeah. one. Yeah. I said Mac wants the flamethrower earlier. I also mentioned Gary's like tied to this fucking couch line. Yep. And obviously the biggest line of the movie is the sign-off dynamite throw. Fuck you too. Yeah. Fuck you too. And then he throws the yeah. dynamite. It's so good. Yeah. I I get, I'm pretty sure like. Most, if not all, of those are the exact same lines I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love McCready's line when they discover the spaceship. He, I said it earlier, but yeah, when he says, we're not getting out of here alive, but neither is that thing. You mm-hmm. know, It's such a badass line. Yeah. It's one of those 80s action movies lines <laughs> that we were talking about before we started recording. You know, I mean, it's the... It's his version of Arnold's "I'll be back," you mm-hmm. know, or whatever. So that's he wrote down the monologue when yes, the bodies are burnt, and yes. he does his whole monologue. About, I love this monologue; it's y- so good, and it's so smart in his thinking. Where yes, yeah. he knows, like if you all were, th- if you all were impersonations, you would all attack me, but you guys aren't. So some of you are real, and some of you aren't. Yeah, I love it. I'll, I'll go ahead and read it real quick. But it's so good. He just goes, "I know I'm human, and if you were all these things, you'd just attack me right now." So some of you are still human. This doesn't want to show itself. It just wants to hide and inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then there ha- it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill. Then it's one. There's a storm hitting us in six hours, and we're going to find out who's who. Like, that setup right there just mm-hmm. sets up the whole rest of the movie, yeah. and it just is so good. And, his, and again, Kurt Russell's delivery is so badass with it. Uh, but, yeah, my absolute favorite one is the tie to this fucking couch mm-hmm. one that Gary gives in the blood test. You know, love. He's like, I know you gentlemen have been through a lot. But when you find the time, I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to this fucking couch. It's perfect delivery and just like it just gives him the time to react like that. Oh my gosh. And yeah, it's just like a perfect um it's a perfect like ending to that to like what everything that happened. All the chaos. Yeah, and it's just like they're exhausted after it. Uh-huh. It, it, like yeah, I love it. It's a perfect ending to that whole scene. I love like just his facial expressions, the actor who plays Gary. I can't remember what his name is, but he's just so funny in that whole scene in general, like I said, with the editing, you know, Childs is like, cut me loose, cut me loose after mm-hmm. he tests negative. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to him just sitting there moping on the couch, just yeah. like slung over. He's just like, all right, I guess I'm the only one left. Yeah. It's so good. It's great. Uh, best best character, my personal favorite. I love, like I said, I love McCready. Kurt Russell does an incredible job with this role. He's so badass in it, and I love it. You know, he's favorite character in this whole movie. Um, but really, everyone does such a phenomenal job with this in, with their roles in this entire movie. I mean, everyone is so good, and everyone knows exactly what their character is. Like, we have so many different, distinct, and unique characteristics mm-hmm. in this whole thing, which is why I love it so much. You know, because like you can't like pinpoint a suspect or anything like that with who it is you mm-hmm. know so that's what that's just what makes the mystery so good with it how about you do you have any other uh, i mean nominees? obviously everyone loves mccready mm-hmm. he's one of the best horror movie protagonists of all time <laughs> but i also um 
I love Fuchs, even though he's cut off short. Fuchs is great. He's also a person that is really, he's able to know what's going on really fast and yeah. is smart. And I personally believe that even though you don't know what happens to him, you only see his um, burnt, charred corpse. Yeah. I think he burned himself to save himself. That was one of the ambiguous questions I yeah. had for you at the end. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you, too. Like, I think, I mean, either he burned himself or, I mean, they throw out all the theories, but, like, I think either that or he did try to fight it, but, like, he ended up going up in the blaze with it because, like, he knew, like, even if I'm, even if I still get infected, like, I got to burn mm-hmm. myself, you know, so. So, yeah, there's Fuchs. I do love Fuchs, too. McCready. So. Windows? Windows is great, yeah. His, <laughs> the very beginning, what, like, he everybody's getting pissed off at him because he can't yeah. reach anybody, but he's like, I've been trying for, like, three weeks now to yeah. reach somebody. <laughs> um, Windows and Childs? Childs is great, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I have him on some of my mm-hmm. nominees, too. I love... So, Childs and Gary are my other nominees, but really, like I said, anybody could deserve to be on this list because everybody's so good in this movie, but go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, and Keith David's also perfect in another John Carpenter film, They Live. Yes, yes. I'm here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. That's a whole nother <laughs> speech right there. But, yeah, I mean, the thing about the thing about the thing is that it's a perfect cast of characters mm-hmm. for a horror movie. These are not, like, dumb teens, right? It's, yeah. These, these guys are all old men who, one, they look the part. Another reason why I don't like the thing um, prequel is that these all look like actors. Yeah. These are all, like, kind of young 30s some of them like older norwegian actors but i mean these look like young like non non scruffy adults and Mm -hmm. the thing they're all really old people who you can tell they've been at this place forever yeah and they have such like a hard-assed attitude Mm -hmm. and another thing is that they are smart they are they are that i like i love every one of the characters in it because they are smart people that understand the situation they make the logical decisions Mm mm-hmm you know, and going back to Fuchs, I mean, he is a really smart character because he, he also makes the decision. He's like, hey, I heard, he goes, I saw in Blair's notes, you know, like if it can in- imitate an entire organism, we should start making our own meals and we should start eating out of cans, right, you know? Right, Because it, it's nothing that can be contaminated and stuff like that. So it's such a smart move. And I mean, everybody else does a really good move. I mean, even when they lock McCready out of the the base, you know, after finding the, t- the torn clothes mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Even though, like, we love Kurt Russell, we love his character, you know, and we're like, come on, let him in. You know, there's no way he's a thing and stuff like that. You it's don't the, know. The, it's the, the logical right decision the to make. Who doesn't know that? Yeah. Like, it, it, within both our world and the film, the world of the film, we don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, again, another reason why it's so good. So good. Uh, so, some behind-the-scenes knowledge and fun facts about the movie. We've talked quite a bit about some of them. Uh, so, yeah, like I said, it's a remake of The Thing from Another World, uh, the film that was made in the 1950s. And like you said earlier, uh, the film can be seen on the TV that Laurie and Tommy Doyle watch in Halloween. Uh, so in order to ch- achieve some of the special effects that he wanted for the film, like we said, uh, a lot of the effects guys, you know, they worked seven days a week and they had to be hospitalized. You know, it's it was crazy how much how much effort they put into it. And it's crazy. Um, in the scene, in the defibrillator scene, when Cooper or, or uh, Copper's arms are bitten off by the, in the defibrillator scene, they achieved it with the help of a double amputee wearing a mask and fake limbs. Did you know about that one? Yes, I knew that um, they made an entire prosthetic mask of the doctor. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because his arms get bit off, they just put that over him with the um, amputated arms. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's just and like, unless you know that it is a prosthetic mask, you can't tell, which is yeah. another part in the beauty of Rob Bottin's work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's so good in this movie. Mm-hmm. He does such a great job with everything. 
Uh, so the defibrillator scene itself, this the scene where all of the the guts and things like that spurred out of Norris's chest, it took about ten hours to set up, just to set it up and to shoot. They could only do it in one take, and so Carpenter, on the very first take, like five seconds in, he called cut and said that all the guts like looked like a fountain coming out, and they needed to do it again. So the crew stopped cleaned everything up and set the scene back up and it took an additional 10 hours and the mm-hmm. second take used is the one in the film. Do you know about that one? I did not know that they had to redo the take. Yes. I do. There's a little diagram you can see of how they drew it out where there's like a guy underneath mm-hmm. and there's like another guy to the left of the table like pumping a sort of... Like l- air to push it all out. Yes. It's like a twist or like a spin. I don't know the term. But, like, it's, like, a spin gear, yeah. and it's just, like, so much um, work into it. And, yeah, if it took 10 hours to set up, you got to make sure that it looks good on the take. You do. You do. It's, it's a lot of it's effort crazy. to set up again. I don't think I would have had the same motivation as the crew or Carpenter or anything like that to be, like, this just took us 10 hours to set up. Nope, we're going to stop, and we're going to redo it. If I was on that crew, I guarantee I would have been, like, the take is good enough. <laughs> right. Well, I'm not setting this up mm-hmm. for another 10 hours. Like, it's so good. It's so good. Like I said, uh, Norwegian Base Camp is the exact same set as the American base after they blew it up. Uh, John Carpenter did not compose the score. Uh, and then, like we said, there was an alternate ending where McCready is rescued and given a blood test, and he proves that he is a human. Uh, moving on to some nitpicks. Do you have, like, any just small nitpicks? I know you said at the top of the show, like, you can't quite find anything, like, you want to criticize about the movie, but there are some, like, small nitpicks. Do you have anything that you wanted to share? Small nitpick is that when the... Um, Blair thing tentacle crashed to the floor and grabs the TNT detonator. Yeah, it's obvious that it's stop motion, but yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it does its job and it didn't. It, that's the only time you use it, and yeah. I am perfectly fine with it. Same here. There's charm in stop motion. Ray Harryhausen kind of stop motion where it's obvious that it's stop motion, mm-hmm. but it's still, you know, it's fun to watch. I mean, another one is obviously that. It's not friendly to dogs at all. No. No. It is not friendly whatsoever to dogs. Because, like, even though the few that did survive the original dog attack, it's just They're a killed. line thrown away. It's like, yeah, Blair killed the dogs, yeah. too. And then they cut back to him. One of them has an axe in its back. It's like, yeah, God it's dang like, it. Mm. Like, really? And the uh, character of the uh, dog owner, I forget his name, that McCree shoots, he also shares the same way where he's connected oh, much more to the dogs uh, rather than Clark. the people. Yes, Clark. He also shares the same way when McCree um, instinctively like decides to shoot the uh, dogs that are being grabbed by the dog thing in the kennel. He shoots them and he reacts like no, and then yeah. like he grabs the shotgun and they force her to throw him back. Yeah, not friendly to dogs at all. Not friendly whatsoever to dogs. Uh, t- I have two small nitpicks. One, it's it's again it's really small, but like. How the hell did the Norwegians not... How were they not able to get the dog? I know we were just talking about like how unfriendly this movie is to dogs, but like how were they not able to get the to kill the dog in the beginning? Because like they had it like 10 times, and they screw it up so badly. Like they have... The dog has nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You know, it just keeps running. There's nowhere to like take cover or anything like that, and that guy's just an absolute horrible shot. And then to make things worse, like when he goes to throw a grenade, he like fumbles it and throws yeah, it backwards. That is kind of like, comical how doing? he just he like throws behind him and it goes into the snow. And obviously, it's hard to find things in really deep snow, and he just yeah. blows up with the helicopter. Um, if I if I were that pilot, that Norwegian helicopter pilot, I would not have gone like digging for it. I would have just no, ran, yeah, yeah, just run. <laughs> obviously, yeah, they're aim- it's hard to aim on a helicopter. I understand that, but when yeah. you're standing at it, yeah. But then again, the dog runs into the whole crew and the. 
I believe the Norwegian screams like that thing is not human in Norwegian, and but he doesn't want to shoot at the yeah, Americans yeah. at first, but then he realizes like they're not going to move. So he's just got to do it. Yeah, he's got to do it, and then he shoots. Um, I believe it's Bennings in the lake. Yeah, Bennings. Yes, Bennings gets shot in the lake, and then they're forced to kill him. Um, but then again, if they did shoot at it, it would not do much as yeah. it could tank a gunshot. I guess. And it'd probably yeah. just keep running. <laughs> You have to burn that thing. Oh, yeah, just a small one there. But this is the teeny, teeny, tiniest one. But, like, what the hell is McCready's hat? That's, like, the... Uh, I'm sorry, but, like... I want to see what it looks like again. Like, is it a, it's, it's not a cowboy hat, right? It's no, more flat. It's, like, a cowboy hat, like, ten sizes too big. Like, it's w- this ginormous... Like, I don't even know how to describe it, but, like, it's such a weird hat that he has in this movie. It's, like, so oversized. Oh, wow, yeah. so <laughs> weird. It's, like, what the hell is he wearing right now? Like... Everything about this movie's great, but whoever chose that hat, I'm sorry. That was like that wasn't the best decision. <laughs> At I, least according to me. At least according to me. I think it could be maybe referencing his old like when he's kinda like seen as like a modern cowboy kind I of I guess so, yeah. That's probably the most I can get out of that. Yeah, probably. It's, yeah, just this massive cowboy. Well, I don't know if it's cowboy hat or not, but yeah, it's yeah, just I don't even massive, know how to describe it. Massive hat. It's such a weird looking hat, yeah. though, to me at least. I, I, I kind of dig it. <laughs> I would not be able to pull it off whatsoever. No. So I'm probably just petty. Uh, okay, so some final questions about the film. This is what I wanted to get into. You know, just the all the different conspiracy theories, all the different all the different questions that this movie poses. I'll get into a couple of them right now. So number one, who do you think is the silhouetted figure that the dog attacks in the like basically? is the first victim, Mm -hmm. the first human victim in this movie. Like, the dog comes walking down the hallway, sees a silhouetted figure in a room, and then it cuts to black. So John Carpenter did not use any of the actors for that sequence. Which is genius. It is genius, honestly, to help keep the mystery alive. Mm -hmm. So who do you think that could have been? Either Norris or Palmer. I tend to think more Norris because, this obviously, Palmer has some pretty crazy like afro hair so yeah the silhouette is more in line obviously it's not any of the actors so it's just a random crew guy that he threw in there but yeah i tend to think it falls more towards norris's silhouette and mm-hmm. yeah i'd say that's he was the one that was infected by the dog when it walked into the room totally agree with you there i mean even though it isn't any of the actors like the silhouette itself still relatively looks like Norris, you know, kind of a little bit of a bigger guy, kind of had mm-hmm. some curlier hair at the top. So I, I kind of, I tend to believe that it's more Norris too. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think. Uh, who do you think sabotaged the blood? I'd say Palmer. Palmer. And he obviously stole the keys when windows dropped them. Mm-hmm. And on the keys are probably the, um, the key to the blood bank. This one is always tough for me to decide, but I think it, yeah, it probably is Palmer as mm-hmm. well. I think he... He's the only one that makes logical sense, you know? So, I mean, that's probably what I think. Uh, you know, going off of that, I don't have this question, but who infects uh, Blair? Who do you think infects Blair? Hmm, I need to think of the timeline. So Yeah, I'm trying to remember. But So we go from first, it's, well, Bennings is the first one that gets infected, but that's by the yes. split head thing, and that's burnt. And that's when uh, Blair... Like goes and destroys the radio room right. and stuff like that, you know. And then they capture him and they throw him in the in the shed. And he's obviously infected when he's in the shed because that's asking for the thing to go and just snatch you. Mm-hmm. I'd say so. Yeah, we have Norris is infected. I don't know if this is is this before is this before or after he has like the heart attack. This probably I think it's before he has the heart attack. So Norris is still active. So it could be him or it could be Palmer. 
I think there's a theory online because like he has like cans of food with him because mm-hmm. Blair has cans of food with him. Like somebody had to have like brought him food, you know. Right. So like I think that's a theory online that like whoever brought him the food had to have been the thing. So either yeah, like Norris or Palmer mm-hmm. had to have uh, assimilated him there when they were bringing him food or something like that. So mm-hmm. I don't know who specifically it could have been, but it, it, his death is always the one that always catches me by surprise and I always forget about it. It's like, oh yeah, Blair's infected too, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a strange one, but that's kind of more what I lean towards. Um, so yeah, we talked about who sabotaged the blood. How do you think Fuchs died or who killed him? And we kind of talked about this one earlier too. He obviously, I believe, I mean, his body's charred. I believe that he um, probably burned himself with a flare because mm-hmm. he probably saw one of the things approach him outside mm-hmm. and yeah, he was like better me than them. Probably, yeah. I mean, because it's not, it's not pleasant to be assimilated. I've read that supposedly it like the thing when it does assimilate, like say for example when Gary's like um, face morphed into Blair when he shoves his hand on his face, or Benning's, like I said, like the thing enters into every orifice in your body. Yeah, it's not pleasant. It's violent. It tears you apart, it's and it just brings you into painful. It. You know, yes, it's, it's horrible. Uh, and so final one. Are either McCready or Childs the thing in the end? What do you think? Not McCready because we see him throughout the entire final and my kind of rule. This kind of also goes for like um, movie deaths. If I don't see it happen or told, I can also believe I, I'm gonna believe more towards like oh he's not dead yet. Yeah. But it's kind of hard in this kind of movie where mm-hmm. like an example being either you don't like Childs just disappears and comes back or the character of. Um, let me check his name. It is. Sorry, give me a sec. I'm no, you're good. Looking. You're good. Knowles. Um, Knowles walks off and you never see him again yeah. at the end part. I'd still believe he's McCready because that's who we follow for the entire finale and we see him successfully throw dynamite at the thing. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's Childs. Maybe it isn't. I tend to believe more that it is Childs because I also like to have fun with the theories of like no breath. Oh, yeah. And like the gasoline drink mm-hmm. that he doesn't react to, and McCready mm-hmm. laughs after that. Yeah, it's for me. I agree with you. I agree with you. I don't think McCready is a thing, all because of that big monologue that he gave earlier. He's like, "I know I'm human, and if you were all this thing, you would just attack me." So because of that line right there, it makes me think like you know, like the thing knows who the other things are, you know. So they work together, quote unquote, mm-hmm. you know. So it makes me think like. Yeah, so it makes no sense why McCready would destroy it then, if mm. that is the case. Like, it makes no sense why McCready would just destroy the thing at the end, you know? As far as Childs goes, his... I Always, I'm going back and forth on it all the time, you know? I mean, because it's always, yeah, it's just so weird why he leaves the outpost and then he just shows right. up at the end. He's and like, where were you, Childs? He's like, I think I <laughs> He doesn't give the best reasoning. No, he doesn't. He's like, I saw Blair. And I went him, after him. And I got lost. Exactly, and it's like even though you, you saw like this whole place exploding, yeah, and you got it's lost. Like, like how could you like, get if lost? You, if you are right, you're just very vague in your reasoning that yeah. kind of warrants you a suspect. It, yeah, I totally agree. Like his his reasoning doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like I guess I could kind of believe it because like we do see him like run outside, you know, mm-hmm. and, as opposed to them like getting back inside and they're like, "Where's Childs at?" You know. So I mean. I don't know. Like, as far as Childs goes, I'm with you, though. I like to believe that he is a thing at the end because I do like to also play into just, like, the conspiracy theories. It's like, oh, 
we see we see no breath coming out of Childs, but we look over at McCready and he's like a chimney anytime yeah. he talks. Yeah. You know, it's it's a great theory. I really like it because just the way it's shot. Like that's one of those things that I think it was intentionally done by Carpenter to have the breath. You know, like I'm sure like there are some instances where you can maybe kind of see Childs's breath, but I mean I don't know. I haven't looked that closely at it. Yeah. But but I mean. I don't know, man. I, I I'm gonna go with it though. I think Childs might be a thing, just because of how weird and vague his character arc is during that whole climactic scene. You right. Know? So it's so weird. But yeah. So, uh, moving on. I already asked you at the top what your favorite thing about this movie is. You know, we've talked a lot about it throughout this whole podcast. You know. So, uh, is there anything else that you want to talk about before we start wrapping up or anything? Is there anything that we didn't get to that you were hoping that we talk to that we talk about? Uh, I'd like to ask, who do you think gets the most violent um, death in the Oof. movie? I'd probably say Windows. Yes. Because he starts to get annihilated by Palmer as the thing. Like, he's getting chewed up. Like, he gets picked mm-hmm. up and is put headfirst into Thing Palmer's mouth. And the thing that caught me, like, that caught my attention during that scene the last time I watched it was just you can hear him screaming the whole time. Right, the screams yeah. are so chilling. Yeah. You hear him screaming the whole time, and then he doesn't die. No, he gets yeah, spit they, back out. They cut back to him after the thing blows up, and you see him just like slowly like writhing because he is being assimilated yeah. currently, and, and then, he's just, like covered in like blood, and like he's he looks so, like glossy and yeah, like, yeah, just it's covered rough. in both Palmer and his own blood. And then to cap it all off, McCready just torches him mm-hmm. with the flamethrower. Mm-hmm. So I'd probably have to say I'd probably have to go with Windows. Like I, I can imagine. All the other guys had a horrible, horrific, violent death. You know, I mean, Norris gets his chest ripped open, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, even some of the off-screen ones, we can imagine, like, something horrible happened. You know, like, Fuchs burning himself alive and all that. But, mm-hmm. like, like Windows gets it rough the most. Like, he, he gets both attacked by the thing and then just incinerated all in one, you know. So, what do you think? I'm guessing you agree with that? I'd agree. Another one that also kind of really unnerved me was Gary. Obviously, I mentioned this earlier when Blair yeah. um, ambushes him and just puts his hand on his mouth. Like, his fingers and all yeah, up in his face. Like, it, like, stretches his mouth back and it eventually, like, you see um, Blair drag him off, like, a bag on the ground. Oh and just, God. like, his skin is just morphed and, like, blended into Gary's face. Mm-hmm. And it just looks... It's not violent. It's not bloody. Well, it's kind of violent. But it's just <laughs> kind of, like, unnerving that, like, the thing will just, like, morph and, like, um, like stick to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What, although I don't like the... Um, prequel that much the one thing that didn't nerve me was when the split head more like fuses its head to the side of the guy who's still alive but oh he's crippled. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's like one of the only things i like about it because it's just really creepy and disturbing that he's still alive but just mm-hmm. being dragged off and like stuck to the thing oh yeah i mean like just the ones that where they just don't die are probably the ones that are like just so horrific you mm-hmm. know so like that's what we've been talking about with windows and you know and and gary and all that you know like it's just the the ones that just go on for so long you know and i mean an honorable mention for me might be copper just because of the arms getting ripped off and all oh, that yeah. you know i mean it's yeah absolutely horrible so uh but yeah that's probably what i would go with uh anything else that you wanted to get to another thing i like to mention is how simple but effective the title card is yes they took a garbage bag and they burnt it and <laughs> it just had like this really weird like kind of like flare kind of like burning sound to it yeah but it also like perfectly represents the thing itself it's tearing through Mm -hmm. like it's tearing through people while the title card tears through the garbage bag and burns through it and it just says the thing and it like the font of it looks so good and all that wasn't it like also like 
like the, I've heard about how they created it, but yeah, like a garbage bag. Didn't they have like a fish tank or something like that with it too? I'm like, not sure. I have heard that. Yes, they did burn a garbage bag for it, but I've heard so many weird theory. Oh, not theories, but like stories about mm-hmm. how they did it. You know, and it's never like I've never understood. I feel like I would just need to watch it in person to like see mm-hmm. how they did it. No, yeah, that's kind of the same thing with the effects. Yeah, I um, watched a video on the behind the scenes of the. Um, defibrillator defibrillator scene mm-hmm. and all like some of the stuff that Botine used to create the effect is like I wrote down here mayonnaise creamed corn yeah. KY jelly and melted gum which yeah like I micro- don't know how you think of that but it works I it, guess it it's such a creative process and I don't know how he does it but he just makes it work with ease mm-hmm. it's so creative you know it's so good <laughs> but yeah I'm with you because I've heard all the different things you know like they use a lot of this the the uh go-to things that you know the people that horror movies use for gore but then yeah like you said like mayonnaise like strawberry jam and yeah bubble gum and stuff like that like how yeah like you said how do you think of that but like how did you know that would work it's yeah. such a it's so weird mm-hmm. you know it's so cool though it looks great in the end obviously mm-hmm. so uh was there anything else you wanted to get to i just i, I kind of like to think like i mentioned before what if the film was successful when it came out oh my god because Carpenter kind of after this film and like sort of the flop he kind of started to hate the Hollywood system after he did he would do much smaller movies and Yeah, he wouldn't get a budget as big as the thing in other movies like he's obviously made really good movies after this like I love Christine I love they mm-hmm. live yep and even some like more 90s films which is like where he doesn't he isn't as good I saw like movies like in the mouth of madness mm-hmm. but it makes me wonder like what if this film was successful when it came out I'd what like you- to ask you that yeah, I, that's a great question. It's a great question. I mean, it's so hard to play the what if game because, you know, like, what do you wanted to do more big budget movies like this afterward? I mean, it's not like this movie had a huge budget or anything like that, you know, like compared to like a lot of the action movies that we were talking about, you know, before we started, like a lot of the Arnold movies, things like that, you know, mm-hmm. those had mega massive budgets and stuff like that. But I mean, it does make me think, you know, like what kind of projects would you have taken on? You know, would you have tried to do more franchise stuff like Halloween? Would he have come back to the Halloween franchise more often, you know? Like, it's... Obviously, I don't think he would have had as big of a hate for the Hollywood system after Mm -hmm. the thing, you know? Because, I mean, I think he has a quote where he says, like, you know, I've never understood that stuff, you know, I never try... Uh, He's like, I've given up on trying to figure out how Hollywood works and stuff like that. So, I mean... Um, Go ahead. Sorry, he's kind of funny with it because... Studios just approach him like, "Hey, we're gonna make a Halloween remake or a Halloween sequel," mm-hmm. and he just like, accepts it. And he's like, just, "I just take the check." He d- it kind of <laughs> seems like it at this point now, which sucks, you know. But I mean, even when, even if he is half-assing it, he does such a great job because I mean, mm-hmm. the I love the 2018 version of Halloween. Halloween Kills is a different story. I wasn't, yeah. huge, eh, it wasn't that good. Uh, but the 2018 Halloween I thought was really good. And again, he's back behind the the score of it and he takes his own score and he just remixes it a little bit and mm-hmm. it works out so well you know i think they for the scene where the uh the comedic relief guy i can't remember what, what his name is but like he gets the the, the fence poke yes, and then like pokes through yeah, his, his chin the, and all uh, that and is it the soundtrack like, yeah called the figure stocks something like that yeah i think just, i know what you're talking about and yes i did remember when i watched that when it first came out in 2018 i was like that's really good score right there first time i heard that that sound just the boom when oh, i first yeah. heard it it was it gave me chills yes so I badly. actually yeah i know what you're talking about now yeah it's i think the way they said it they they did it was like they ran a violin bow 
across a guitar to do it, like to get the sound effect for it to like make it the sound last and like just go a little bit mm-hmm. longer like that. Like it's such a creative way in how they do it, and it's just so good. So like even when John Carpenter is ha- kind of half-assing it, yeah, he still gives it a hundred and ten percent, obviously. But like it, he still just does an amazing job. Some of my favorite um, scores are by John Carpenter. Like I love the theme to Halloween Three, mm-hmm. Assault on Precinct Thirteen, yes, Escape from New York. Those are all really good themes that I listen to often outside of the film mm-hmm. because it's just really good synth, synth stuff. I love yeah. Synthwave. And, and he does such a great job with it. Going back to like Halloween and sort of like a what if, did you know that they originally planned, like they killed off Michael Myers in Halloween 2. Mm-hmm. They yep. planned to do an anthology with Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. I did know that, yes. And yes. sadly the film flopped because oh, there's no Michael Myers in it. It's a great bad movie. Uh, no, I, I think it's a really good movie, honestly. <laughs> I love like the just sort of like insanity of it and it does get, it's just it's it's a really weird film to start off this anthology with, but I love the risks that it took. It did, yeah. And when it works, like say for example the um like Silver Shamrock test scene, mm-hmm. it's really good stuff. <laughs> it and is. It kind of makes me wish that movie was also successful, at least like not like a massive hit, but like at least like it earned the money back and it wasn't like hated because it took a different risk with the Halloween franchise. To yeah. Where you have this sort of like Twilight Zone of Halloween movies that take place on Halloween night and have yeah. a different story and a different vision for each one. Like. I, I totally agree with that. You know, it, I, I had heard about that. Yeah, that there was an anthology plan for it. I think the only way that it could have worked was if Halloween 2 was like the next part of this anthology series instead mm-hmm. of, you know, doing Halloween and then Halloween 2 with Michael Myers still. And I think that like that was the biggest reason why Halloween 3 flopped was because it didn't have Michael Myers in mm-hmm. it. And, and, you know, that's why people were so mad. So I feel like that was the only way that that idea could have been executed. Like, that's the only way that it could have worked. But. I think John Carpenter gave in when the studio was like, we'll only do Halloween 2 if you make it another Michael Myers movie. And so he right. so he agreed. And then he said on the condition that I can do this anthology idea that we've had, that mm-hmm. he and Deborah Hill had had. So, I mean, I when I first heard about that, I totally agree with you. Like, I think it would have been a cool thing to see, you know. And I think it's because, like, it would have reminded me of the Twilight Zone-esque kind of thing, you know. And Because we've seen with the thing he can kind of match that same tone and feel that Rod Serling brings with all of his sci-fi things, you mm-hmm. know? So, and, and I agree. It was a really admirable step to take with, like, how outlandish the plot oh, yeah, is, like you know? Androids who leak yellow milky fluids. With a the Stonehenge with uh, a, power with it. A mad Irish toy company owner who makes masks infused <laughs> with a piece of Stonehenge that will melt kids' heads into snakes and bugs. <laughs> Through broadcasting of a commercial on Halloween night because he wants to relive the old um, pagan traditions of Halloween and sacrifice all the kids of America. Yeah, like that is the plot. That is the evil. I'm not making that up. (laughs) If you have never heard about Halloween 3, if you've never like none known anything about Halloween 3, what Carter just said is the actual legit plot of that movie. If you want to hear more about it but don't want to watch the movie, highly recommend the podcast How Did This Get Made? where they talk oh, about this movie, that. it's probably the funniest hour and a half I ever get. Like, Jason Manzoukas, Paul Shear, June Day, and Rachel, they all do an incredible job on that podcast, and they're so funny together. And they talk about Halloween 3 season of The Witch. It's just so funny to listen to listen to them rip into it. It's so funny. Highly recommend it. And also with the sort of ambiguous ending, Halloween 3 has also a really yes, good ambiguous ending. It does. Where I don't want to spoil it, but like the main character suffers like a panic attack and stop it ends up yeah, screaming, stop it, and you don't know what happens after it. And it just cuts to black after that with his screams echoing it's, with like this 
the commercial continually playing. Honestly, it does give me chills, though. Honestly. It, that's a really good scene, though. Like, yeah, the film can be, like, really outlandish, but that is a very effective ending. It is, honestly. Like, the movie itself may not be the greatest thing ever, but that ending is... I'll, I'll give it to it. It's mm-hmm. solid. It's a mm-hmm. solid ending, honestly. Oh, man. Love Halloween 3. Love John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. They're all great. Uh, mm-hmm. Anything else that you wanted to touch on before we finished up? I think I'm all finished here. All righty. Well, that sounds good. Uh, Carter, where can people find you on social media? Uh, just look me up on my YouTube is my name carter burkhart and on instagram you can find me at carter.burk b-u-r-k and yeah that's where you can contact me all right well do you have anything else that you want to plug before uh we end things here i know you're working on a on a project (laughs) shameless plug but yes i am working on a short film that is due by february 2022 it'll be on my youtube very cool very cool all right. Well, I'll be looking out for that one. I'm really excited about it. Thank uh, you. I saw on your I saw on your Instagram page uh, just kind of the quick plot synopsis and all that. So if you're interested, check out Carter's Instagram page. Look for it on YouTube. Uh, February, you said? February 2022 and or March. All righty. That sounds good. Well, Carter, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate all your support for the show and just willingness to be on here. So I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you all. I loved this conversation. Oh, yeah. I loved it. It was great. It was great. Thank you so much. And uh, thank you all so much for listening to The Cinemaniacs. Uh, Like I said, this was a bonus episode up at the top, so I hope that your Christmas break is going well. Happy holidays once again. Happy New Year. And be on the lookout for a mini episode, hopefully soon, where I will be giving the entire spring 2022 lineup for the rest of our uh, season for next semester. So thank you all so much for listening. Um, We'll see you next time on The Cinemaniacs.